Yep, it's that time of the week again. Another from the archives look at the book of James. And it's my pleasure to reintroduce once more Matt Bounds. So we're in James chapter 2 this week, and if your rooted groups are keeping up, that's probably where you'll be as well, thinking about how the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is, reorders, reimagines what social structures and importance and value looks like, and how that is played out in our organisations, in our church, and in our everyday lives. So, sit back, relax. And listen to those warm, dulcet tones that are the Reverend Matthew Bounds. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into a meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. This is God's word. I don't know, any uh, James Bond fans in the room? Seriously? Three of you? Four. Gaz at the back. A few James Bond... But, right, this might fall flat then. Um, Goldfinger. Remember Goldfinger? Does anybody, I was trying to remember. Does anybody know the name of the actor who played Goldfinger? I cut for the life of me can't remember. Any geeks in the room who know that one? Somebody actually know? He was, uh, he was Bond, wasn't he? Yeah. I can't, I, I can't remember either, Liz. I can't remember who it is. But did you know, my reason for asking it, did you know that you find Goldfinger in the New Testament? You do? Seriously, we just read it. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And literally, where it says they're a gold ring, it means a gold-fingered one. Literally, Goldfinger. Suppose Goldfinger comes into your gathering. So picture it, picture the scenario. Mr. Goldfinger enters the congregation. He's, let's assume he's known in the Ammonford area. He's, I hope this doesn't fit the description of anybody actually in the room this morning, by the way. Um, He's a a landlord. He's got lots of properties. Uh, Unfortunately, he's known for being quite harsh with his tenants. 
For example, just when the bedroom tax is starting to bite and they're starting to struggle, he, he puts their rents up even more. He's also known, because he's a merchant in the town, for being litigious, and when people can't pay their debts to him, he doesn't muck about, he takes them straight to court. He's not a nice guy. He doesn't treat people who owe him money well. And unfortunately what happens, as he comes through the door, well known as he is for not just being rich, but for not being a good character, everybody in the congregation starts to kowtow to him. And somebody goes up to him, maybe it's one of the elders, one of the the deacons goes up to him and says, come and sit at the front. Because we know, don't we, that the holiest people and the most important people sit in the front row in church. So uh, they say, come and sit down the front and have a nice spot with me next to me, Mr. Goldfinger. That's the sort of scenario that James had been hearing was happening in some of the churches that he wrote to. And the crazy thing was that so many of the Christians in the churches he wrote to were poor Christians who were being oppressed by people just like this. And yet he's saying, suppose someone like that comes in. I don't think it's just a hypothetical thing. I think James knows this is happening sometimes. Not only that, not only do they treat Mr. Goldfinger so well, but also when a more scruffy visitor comes through the door, what they say to him is, "Um, come up the back, and there's a bit of space at the back on the floor by my seat. You can sit there. You're safe there. James hears this, and he's absolutely incredulous. He wants to say to those to whom he's writing the letter, what on earth are you doing? Or in terms of our series, it's not up on the screen this morning, actually, the title of our series, Wise Up. He's yet again says to the people who who are reading his letter, Wise Up. Not only is this illogical, not only is this hypocritical, but also, and here's a key thing from what we've seen so far in the in the, the, the epistle of James, This isn't the gospel being worked out. This isn't the gospel being worked out. We were chatting about it as elders um, last week that Sammy and I have used the phrase, which Sammy unpacked a bit last week again, that James is saying wise up and wisdom to him means the gospel being applied to everyday life. But that's a nice phrase to use. What do we mean? What we mean is that what God has done for us and what he's doing in us should be reflected in our lives and the way we live. And James is saying, you're not being wise if this is what you're doing. You're not working the gospel out, what God has done in you. You're not showing it in the way you live. So as he continues to develop what wisdom is, he he keeps going back to the themes he introduced. The first part of chapter one, three of his main themes get introduced there. And he keeps going back to them. For example, the idea of, of suffering and trials, the idea of wisdom, but also here, the idea of how Christians are supposed to respond to issues like poverty and wealth. What are Christians supposed to do about poverty and wealth? He uses that as an example to drive home again the point he's making about wisdom, about wising up, about living the Christian life the way we're meant to live it. And he uses this poor man and uses Mr. Goldfinger as a launching point, a launching pad to make his point. Actually, twin points, I think, from this passage. Two points this morning. Some of you are very relieved. There are only two points, not three, but the two points will probably take up as much time as the usual three. Um, First point is this. In terms of how Christians live wisely, Christians should not show favoritism. That's his his main statement in this passage, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. That's his thesis, if you like. That's the point he wants to make, he wants to set out to prove. And then in verse 5, He explains why. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? 
See how he's trying to get them to apply the gospel to the way they do the Christian life. The gospel says, amongst other things, that God has chosen those who are poor in the world's eyes. He's chosen some people who are rich and influential, yes, but most of us are not influential and not important in the world's eyes, and yet he's chosen us. God hasn't chosen the elite. Sorry, everybody here this morning who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. God did not choose you. He did not save you because you're the elite. He didn't choose me because I'm part of the cream. He chose us because he's a merciful God. He hasn't shown, in other words, favoritism or partiality. God never shows favoritism. His son, Jesus Christ, died for every sort of person, absolutely without exception. Jesus Christ offers himself and offers himself this morning to all, without exception. God is building, and you you find this all the way through from Genesis to Revelation, don't you? God is building a people from every tongue and tribe and nation, from every social stratum, from every income group, every age group, every sex. That is how God has acted. So if our glorious Lord, Jesus, acted that way, James is saying, how can we act differently? How can we justify acting differently? To do so is against the royal law. Verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. He then refers refers in verse 12 to the law that gives freedom. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 25, Sam covered last time, we read this. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. This is one of James's buzz phrases, the royal law, the law that gives perfect freedom. He's talking about the same thing. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking not just about the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, etc. But he must be talking here because he calls it the royal law. In other words, it's the same word as for kingdom, kingdom law. He's talking about the law that Jesus expounded, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's talking about what Jesus preached. The law of perfect freedom, the kingdom law. So yes, the Old Testament law, but the Old Testament law taken by Jesus and explained and interpreted and deepened, and yes, for his people, expanded even. That's what he's talking about here when he talks about the royal law. It is law because it's made up of commands. Some people don't like that, but it's true. Jesus says to his people, I have commandments for you. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. It's law. But it's kingdom law. It's freedom law for those who truly believe in Jesus. For someone who really believes in Jesus, that Jesus has done it all, that he's paid the price for them on the cross, that all they have to do is trust in that and trust in him, the law then becomes a wonderful freedom law. It's a law that's meant to be a delight to keep. Law-keeping for the Christian isn't keeping the law of Christ so we can earn our place in heaven because we cannot, and we only have a place in heaven because we've trusted him and he's done it all. But the law-keeping the Christian is called to is one that shows that we do have a place in heaven because he has saved us and done a work in us. 
And James quotes part of that royal law here, doesn't he? Love your neighbor, verse 8. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he quotes that particular part of the royal law, freedom law, kingdom law, to show that love of neighbor means loving every type of person. Christians are meant to obey and follow Jesus' royal law and not show favoritism. That's part of what his law says. So whether it's the rich or poor that we see, uh, and we see this at the end of chapter 1, or orphans and widows, as well as the stronger and less vulnerable in society, James is reminding us we are called to love and be kind to and care for every type of person, not just certain types. So, you know, Sammy was saying to us last time, wasn't he, that if we don't shut up, basically, very harsh is Sammy, isn't he? Uh, if we don't shut up and listen to what God is saying to us, then that religion is worthless. It's not true religion. The true religion that James talks about at the end of chapter 1. Again, what he's saying to us is, if you want to know you're living out true religion, that you're really following Christ, you're really being wise, then you must also not show favoritism. I guess you're getting my, my main point now in the first point. Can I, can I just add, though, verses 10 and 11, where he tw- talks, there about, talks there about whoever's trying to keep the whole law but stumbles in one part, they're guilty about breaking the whole law, and he talks about the law against adultery and the law against murder. The point there is not that showing favoritism is as bad as murder, because obviously in many important respects it's not. The point he's making there is we can't excuse our favoritism by pointing to the rest of the good things we do or by pointing to the evil things we haven't done. Oh, well, I'm, I, oh, I show favoritism a bit, but it doesn't matter. I haven't murdered anybody. I've been faithful to my wife. It doesn't matter. James says, wise up. If you really follow Jesus, you want to try and keep the whole of the royal law. Yes, you're going to fail sometimes. Yes, you're going to fall. But you're going to want to try to obey his commands, including what he says about favoritism. When we show favoritism, we break Jesus' royal law and we undermine our claim to trust in and follow Jesus and we undermine our witness. So that's the first point. We've been told this morning, Christians, we should not show favoritism. Before I move on to the second point, I don't think I can let us off the hook, can I? I I think we've got to look inside and examine ourselves and our hearts and yes, maybe our church. And ask, do we show favoritism? Do we show partiality? I'm guessing most of us would be more subtle than if a rich, influential person walked in, we'd, make, we'd all make a big fuss them and, and drag them down to the front. Maybe we would. Maybe we'd be, too, we'd be more subtle than that. But are we in danger of showing partiality, showing favoritism in some way? Church leaders, elders, deacons, Maybe the treasurer in particular, the trustees. What about that church member or that person who starts to attend church regularly and they start to give? And you're pretty sure, you don't know how much, but you're pretty sure they give well. What about the temptation then to kowtow to them? Maybe in a subtle way. Maybe it's subtle because you just you, you ease off on them a bit, whereas you challenge a lot of people about the stuff they're doing. You, you go easy on them. They're well off because they're giving 20% of the income of the church. Favoritism, partiality, you're breaking the royal law. 
What about well-off members? And some of us in this church qualify as reasonably well-off. Well-off members who look down on low-income believers. Again, we can do this quite subtly. It's not that we, we despise them, obviously, and we say nasty things about them. It's the fact that we don't talk to them. Don't have them over for dinner. Because we don't really click with them, and they're not really part of our set. And we've not really got much in common. Favoritism. You're breaking the royal law of Christ. What about Christians who are outraged and speak up, quite rightly, over sexism that they see in society or their workplace? or racism, but then they overlook and they go quiet when they see those who are socially disadvantaged in society being trodden underfoot. Or they know what's going on in our society in terms of protecting the rights of the unborn, but they never say anything about it. Or they see the way the elderly at the end of life are starting to get squeezed and pressure is starting to be put on them in terms of -of end-of-life care and end-of-life decisions. We let that go. Isn't that being partial? Isn't that showing favoritism? Churches that have a lovely, welcoming environment, one of the reasons we love this church and we love coming along is that we have always found it so warm and welcoming. But I have to ask myself this question. If a poor or destitute or badly dressed or smelly person came into the congregation, would they find it equally as welcoming as I found it? Would I be equally as welcoming to them as some of you have been to me? What about professing believers who make snarky comments, maybe quietly and off to the side, about who bank users? Or they fail to see the point, the point of that food bank. Most of the people who turn up are going and selling the food around the corner anyway and they don't really need it. They're not really that much under pressure. Well, for one thing, I'd say come along to Food Bank and meet some of the people we meet, but uh, that, that's straying from the text. The point is, I refer you again to James 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We are called to show kindness to the most vulnerable in society and not show favoritism, not show partiality. There are all sorts of ways in which we can do it, in which I do it. When I avoid, I'm honestly not looking at anybody in particular, okay? This is just this hypothetical. When I avoid the, the, uh, the noisy or the loud case, and I go and chat to the person who I get on with most and most naturally, because they're cowardly, they can be hard work. I am breaking the law of Christ by showing favoritism. When I gravitate to those I have most in common with. When I tut-tut about the immigrant down the road. I've heard it. I've heard it in conversations on the side. About the immigrant down the road. I'm not making a political statement about numbers of immigrants. What I'm saying is that God is clear in his word. He is building a people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Not just the Welsh. I better add the English and Scottish and Irish, and I just in case there's, there's, there might be a few in the room. It's favoritism. Doesn't matter how you dress it up. You can dress it up with your party politics if you like, but it's favoritism. Because we are differentiating between different types of people in a way that God and Christ has not done. Why do we do it? Why do we show favoritism? We can all slip into it so easily, otherwise, James wouldn't talk about it. 
because we are still affected by sin. That's the big theological answer. For Christians, we're new creations. We've been made new. We've been forgiven, but there's still sin within us we struggle with. That's the big theological answer. But part of that is because we tend to show favor to those we serve to profit from the most. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. It's also because we sinfully and irrationally feel that some people are more worthy than others. Forgetting that the gospel is the great leveler because it reminds us that no one's worthy. Point I'm going to come back to in a minute, but it's a big gospel point, isn't it? In terms of applying the gospel to our lives, no one is worthy of God's goodness and mercy. But all this reminds us, and here's the wonderful thing, that this is emphatically not how the glorious Savior of the gospel has acted. He has loved and saved a great multitude, made from the poor and the rich, the young and the old, the able-bodied and the not able-bodied, male and female, influential, inconsequential, and from every tribe and tongue and nation and age group and social group. That's not how God's acted. So we shouldn't act that way. Show no favoritism, James says. But he doesn't just tell them not to. He tells them what the cure is. The cure is God's grace at work in us through the command at the center of this royal kingdom law, the law that characterizes God's transformed people, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love every type of person as yourself. And here's where I get to my second point. First point was, don't show favoritism, but to state it in a more positive way, and I'm going to try not to pinch too much of Sammy's turf next week, but it's here in the text, so I'm justified in doing it. Look at the end of the passage we read. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Yet this is the second point. Christians should not know favoritism. That's the negative way of stating it. The positive way is this. We should show mercy. Being wise, living out the gospel, having a faith that's real, showing a religion that's true religion, involves showing mercy just as we have received mercy. Showing mercy to the widow and the orphan, as well as to those who are financially secure. To the poor and hungry, as well as the rich and everyone in between. And here's the thing. If it's mercy that we're really showing, it's not based on what that person deserves or what we think they deserve. It's mercy. We we subtly corrupt the gospel sometimes when we think and feel that what happened was when God looked at us, he said, you know, okay, I know he's, I know he's a sinner. I know he's fallen short of my glory, but he's, he's of a decent sort and he's making a bit of an effort. Therefore, I'll show mercy to him. Is that gospel? Is that mercy? No, that's the corruption of the gospel. It's a corruption of what mercy means. Mercy means he looked at me and said he is a hell-bound, vile sinner who deserves nothing from me. What am I going to do to him? I'm going to send my son to die in his place so his sins can be wiped away. That's mercy, isn't it? But see, the trouble is some of us hear all this and then we say, 
yeah, I know we should show mercy, but Matt, you know, some people, the way they live and the things they do and the decisions they make, they don't deserve mercy. You might not say it out loud, but that's what we think. You can't deserve mercy. It's impossible to deserve mercy. Or sometimes, a little bit more subtly, what we say is, well, I am merciful. I do give money. I give money to the church. I give money to the hardship fund. I helped that person down the street the other day. I helped that person from the rooted group. I made meals for them when they were ill. Visited them in hospital. But you know, sometimes what we call mercy, I think it's really self-interest dressed up. It's another form of back-scratching. It's favoritism well-described. Because I can feel towards those people from my rooted group who I get on with and I, I really like them and I've got something in common with them. And they've helped me in the past anyway. So of course when they're ill, I'm going to visit them. Of course when they're struggling, I'm going to make them a meal. Maybe even help them out financially. But what if it's somebody who's not my type? They're not from my group. I don't talk to them often like I should. Well, you know it's mercy when you show it to that person as well as the person you naturally click with and get on with. Because mercy isn't natural for us. And mercy, by definition, is not deserved. Maybe you are good at helping that person out in the rooted group. Helping your family. But you're not so interested in helping the so-called undeserving poor who come into the food bank. Either with your food or your money or your time. You could be, but you don't. Are you really showing mercy? Is it really mercy when you do good things, kind things to other people? That's the test. Do you show it to all types of people? If it's mercy, it will be shown to every type. And this, and I started to a close with this point. All this is really, really important. In terms of the big picture. In terms of that last day when we see Jesus face to face. This all matters. Because isn't this one way of paraphrasing what James is saying all the way through here? How you live, Christians, matters. It really matters. And it matters in the light of eternity. Look at verses 12 and 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So vital as we close, we don't skate over this or water it down. What is James saying here? Well, first of all, what he's not saying. He's not saying that we are right with God, that we're forgiven, and that we know we have a place in heaven through keeping this royal law. We've already said that, but it bears saying again. Keeping the royal law of neighbor, love, and non-partiality and mercy does not put us in the right with God, but it does show we are in the right with God. See, this is a gospel issue. I know that's a phrase that gets abused a lot these days. It was a gospel issue. If you think something's really important, stick that label on it. It's a gospel issue. This is a gospel issue. In the sense that we will stand before him on that day. And one of the things is we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And one of the things that will happen is we will give an account for the things we've done in the body in this life. Does that mean that someone who is trusted in Christ, truly trusted in Christ, will be cast out? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean there are people 
Christians, people professing anyway to be Christians, who are living today, maybe sitting in this room, believing that they go into heaven when there is very little evidence that they have been saved and transformed by the love of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is in them. Because mercy breeds more mercy. Because how we live matters. There are those who think that they're merciful and they aren't at all. And what they're actually showing is that they haven't truly fled to Christ for mercy. Do you see the picture here? James isn't trying to get those who truly rest in Christ and truly trust in Christ to be fearful. But he is saying to those who flippantly say, I follow Jesus Christ, I'm a believer. saying, really? Because I've not seen you showing any mercy. And yet you've been shown this awesome, infinite mercy. There was nothing deserving in you and God saved you. And you don't show any mercy to the people around you? You're happy to just, with abandon, show favoritism in quite a blatant way? And and yet you say you've been saved. You say you belong to Jesus. It doesn't stack up, guys. Wise up. Because if you've been shown mercy, you will show mercy. This is a a gospel issue. And he closes with those words, mercy triumphs over judgment. You could apply that to God's mercy. Saying God's mercy triumphs over his what would otherwise be his judgment towards us in that last day, you could apply it that way. But I think in context, what he's saying is our mercy triumphs over judgment in the sense that on that day when we stand before him, one of the things he will point to is the mercy that we showed others. Say, yep, I saved you by my grace. And one of the evidences of that was that you were a person who did not show favoritism and a person who did show mercy to reflect the mercy that you've received. So I think for us this morning, to apply this royal law and not show favoritism and showing mercy, it could be a simple act of will and it could start this morning to cross the church and to welcome the stranger or the person you've never spoken to, to visit the sister you've, the sister in Christ, that is, you've never visited before. To forgive that relative you've refused to forgive. To get that family round to dinner that aren't in your usual social group and your usual set. This is living out the gospel. This is applying the gospel to life. Because this is wising up for God's glory and for all our assurance and for our joy. Let's praise Sam and Jan and the guys come up. Lord, thank you for what we've looked at together this morning. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will really help us to uh, look within ourselves, not, not in order to decide whether we're good enough for you, because we are not good enough for you. And to only look inside, we know, would lead to despair. But to, to ask ourselves this morning, are we people who show favoritism? Are we people who show favoritism? Or on the other hand, are we people who show mercy? And Lord, stir us up, your people, to be people who reflect the mercy you've shown to us and who do not show favoritism. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't show favoritism. You died for every type, every social group, every race, the able-bodied, the non-able-bodied, the weak and the strong, male and female, every type you died for. Help us to show the sort of love, Lord, that you've shown to us if we are truly yours. In Jesus' name, amen.